this morning is Matthew 5, verse 8, which is on page 810 of the Black Hardback Bible in your pew. Today, lead pastor Kevin Larson will be preaching for us. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, and if you're physically able, stand with me. I will, pray, uh, I will read the passage, y'all follow along, then I'll pray and invite Pastor Kevin on up. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is God's word. Kevin, come on up. Father, um, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. God, you use these words to reveal yourself to us, to shape us and mold us to be more like Jesus. Uh, I pray you would do that this morning. I pray you would purify our hearts as individuals here, but as a church community. God, we want to see you. We want to see you work in our homes and in our church and across our city. God, this morning, I uh, lift up Pastor Kevin to you. I pray that you would have already been working in his study and his writing this past week. I pray that right now you'd be working in his words to us today. God, would we hear your word? Would we obey it? Would we look more like Jesus than we have before? God, we thank you for everything that you've blessed us with. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus and everything that he's done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Good morning once again. Glad to, to keep rolling through the Beatitudes. Several years back, British documentary filmmaker Ruth Whitman began a new life in the United States, and her husband took a job in Silicon Valley, and she followed him here, and she explained in an essay she wrote for Vox that one of the most surprising differences she noticed, and one that stood in stark contrast to her grumpy, cynical homeland, was that Americans, she said, are obsessed with happiness. Obsessed. Everywhere she goes, she writes, she suffers from one of two kinds of conversations. Either what she calls the agonizing kind, where people lament their lack of happiness, or what she calls the evangelical kind, where folks try to sell their path toward it. She explains, she doesn't miss the negativity that she remembers back across the pond, no doubt. But she also just can't sit through more ramblings about mindfulness or empowerment. And then she says that she looks around and she surveys what she sees, she's convinced that our obsession here isn't bearing much fruit. Well, the, the research bears that out, actually. A February CNN.com article entitled American Happiness Hits Record Lows cites a recent Gallup poll finding that only 38% of Americans claim that they're satisfied with their lives. The general social survey that's been produced by the University of Chicago for years had found stable levels of happiness by Americans going back to the 1970s, that is, until 2016. Then the number of those who indicated they were very happy took this precipitous fall, while those who, saying, who were saying they were not too happy jumped way back up. Whitman argues that our fixation on happiness may explain its elusiveness. 
She writes, the happiness-seeking culture is clearly supposed to be a part of the solution, but perhaps it is actually part of the problem. Perhaps America's precocious levels of anxiety are happening not just in spite of the great national happiness rat race, but also in part because of it. A common struggle today, some of which maybe you would, this would apply to you, um, is, is what's called seasonal affective disorder. So seasonal effect, affective disorder, especially in Michigan, Wisconsin, places like that, but it's also something that's experienced here, where the short days last longer than you think you can handle, where the cold temperatures seem to leave you with a frozen heart, and you just long for the days of spring, where you can feel the warmth, see the sun again. You're probably feeling that now. But maybe that's our real problem here in America, church. We can't see God. We don't know him as we should, and it's no wonder that we feel this way. As A.W. Tozer once wrote, trying to be happy without a sense of God's presence is like trying to have a bright day without the sun. Well, today we continue this study through the book of Matthew. We find ourselves in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And we're in this list that's been called the Beatitudes here in chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. And again, these aren't a list where, that we try to check off, either to make God happy or to find happiness ourselves. As we've been saying, they're, they're a picture of those who know God, of those who are blessed. We're in our sixth one this morning out of eight. And as I've been saying, there's a, there's a progression. There's, there's a rationality to them. Of course, they're authored by God. They're not just thrown together. I love the way that Martin Louis-Jones lays it out. He says to picture these verses as a mountain. As a mountain. We have a graphic to show this. Yeah. In the first three, we make ourselves low. We realize our need. And the Lord graciously carries us up that mountain. We realize that we're poor in spirit. We mourn over that. We make ourselves meek. And there at the peak, God meets our need. He satisfies our hunger and thirst. Going down that mountain, we see the results of being filled in that way. We find ourselves peacemakers. We find ourselves pure in heart. We find ourselves merciful. Lloyd-Jones takes it further. He says that the three Beatitudes going down the hill correspond to those going up. Those who are poor in spirit cannot not be merciful to others. Those who mourn their sins, they pursue being pure in heart. And those who are meek naturally end up being peacemakers. And then he says as a result from all this, that we end up being misunderstood and persecuted like our Lord. And we see that in verses 10 through 12. But despite even that, Jesus says what? Again and again, we will be blessed. As, as we show these signs, as we see the rewards, there'll be joy in them for sure. We'll experience this happiness that we long for. And here we see today that comes in seeing God and in having hearts that are pure. Seeing God, having hearts that are pure, this is the life of the person that's blessed. Well, let's jump in and see both of those things. First, the blessed will see God. Now, our pursuit of happiness today generally is limited to what our eyes can see, right? So possessions, position, experiences, relationships, that's what the world tells us. But Jesus says here that what we really want can be found through a different kind of sight. Deep down, we each long to see God. This is what we are made for. 
creation. Back in the beginning of the Bible, back in Eden, in the garden, man and woman, they, they communed fully with God. We saw Him face to face. We were in perfect relationship with Him and with each other. It was only through sin, when we listened to that serpent, that is what drove us from His presence. And fast forward to the new creation, to the end. When Jesus returns, when He makes everything right, this is our hope that we'll see God again. Listen to this passage at the end of our Bible in Revelation. Chapter 22, start in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will see His face. That's our hope, right? Now, if you know the Old Testament, the prophet Moses Ask God, show me your glory. And God said, no, you can't see my face and live. But when we're made new, when we're made right as we were intended, we will stare into his gaze. We, we will be able to look at him fully and to look at him forever. As 1 Corinthians 13 puts it, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is what we were made for. But let's talk more about when this will come about. Yeah, on that day, as we've seen, when Jesus, as he says, is seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, on that day, and on every successive day, if we're believers, we'll see God. That church is our prize. But we can also see him now through the eyes of faith. We can experience his presence. We can commune with him. As, as we've already seen throughout these Beatitudes, there's this tension between the already and the not yet. One day, we'll see Him fully, but today, we seek to see Him little by little, not by sight, but by faith. We call out to God, helping, asking Him to help us see. We go and see how He's revealed Himself in His Word. We look around and seek to see Him and what He's created, and our eyes are open and watching. To see him working around us. Think about it with me. The, the world tells us that spirituality is fine. But talking about the God of scripture, that's another thing entirely. You know, the message is choose your path. Find your happiness. But it's this God, the God of the Bible, who we alone are meant to see. And he is the only place where true joy can be found. A few years ago, our family had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. My wife had wanted to go there for years. Her desire was to go there with her mother back as a kid, but that never materialized, and her mom has since died. But I remember her standing there, looking out over the edge with tears in her eyes. Such glory. You couldn't even take it all in. But think about what we'll see that day. It'll be beyond compare. There'll be so much joy. I have a cousin who lives in Huntington Beach, California. It's a beautiful place. They call it Surf City, USA. It's probably got the best beach around. And she and her family love going to the shore. And they can go there every day, of course, but they don't, right? You know, they, they've gotten used to it. They have other things going on. We do the same thing when it comes to seeing Jesus by faith. But as we 
miss on, out on so much joy. This is ours now. This is our privilege to see the Lord. But whether we're talking about the Grand Canyon or we're walking on the beach, we'll often miss out on the glory. And, and why is that? Because we'll probably be staring at our phones, right? Have you caught yourself in a place like that, looking at your phone, getting used to it really quick? Don't our devices, and especially social media, keep us from seeing the Lord? I think Satan, more than anything, wants us not to see God. We can argue that that's where the Bible is going, and Satan wants to interrupt that. It's what we were made for, to see him. But there are, there are even deeper problems why we can't see him than just distraction. There are two things that make it really hard for us as finite, fallen humans. Well, the Bible says that God is invisible, first of all, right? 1 Timothy 1.17 praises the king of the age, ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Over in chapter 6 of the same verse, in the same book, in verse 16, Paul calls out to the one who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So the Lord is invisible. But there's a second problem, maybe bigger even, is that he's holy. Right? This means that he's separated from us. He's majestic. And it also means he's separated from sin. He's completely pure. And as Hebrews 12, 14 says, we're to strive for peace, but we're to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're also not holy like him. And that's a massive problem. That leads to the second point we see here. Second, the blessed are pure in heart. We talked about our prize. We get to see him one day. This is our race, pursuing that purity that leads to this vision of God. Back to the way I started. What's the main advice that we give people today when they talk about finding happiness? Well, don't we tell people, follow your heart, man? Right? But according to the Bible, this is the opposite of what we should say. Jeremiah, the prophet, says this in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we assume that we, we know our hearts well, that our hearts are basically good. But no, because of our sin, they actually lead us astray. But what do we even mean when we talk about our hearts? We're not talking about the cardiac muscle that's somewhere here in my chest. We're not talking about just our feelings as opposed to our thinking. Now, when Scripture talks about the heart, it's referring to the center of our personality, of who we are deep down in our core. It includes our minds, our hearts, our wills. And all of our Bibles, and this verse right here, assume that our hearts simply are not pure. So, following your heart will lead you into a ditch. Now, if Jesus is calling us to purity of heart, we have to understand what that means. And we have to understand what needs to change. Scholars have gone back and forth about what Jesus is saying right here. Is he on one hand talking about moral purity, cleanliness from sin on the inside as opposed to the outside? Or is he talking more about a focus of having a single-mindedness toward God? And I think we can see why both of those would make sense. Jesus goes off on the Pharisees in this sermon in Matthew 
for focusing on externals and not the inside, right? But he also warns us here to seek first his kingdom, and he tells us that we can't serve Jesus alongside other things like money, right? Now, I lean to the latter, that Jesus is talking about our devotion, our loyalty, our sincerity, where we're headed. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once put it like this, purity of heart is to will one thing. And Jesus is saying, here's the thing to will. But as D.A. Carson has explained, and this is a false dichotomy anyway, because they both go together. If we're focused purely on Jesus, then our hearts are going to end up being pure. And of course, the opposite is true if we focus on bad things. Jesus explains it this way later in the sermon in Matthew 6. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So, that imagery can confuse us, but I think we, we know what he's talking about here. If you spend time looking at unclean things, like pornography, for example... Your heart, as a result, is not going to be clean at all. For the record, scrolling on Amazon mindlessly, endlessly, that isn't going to leave us in a much better place. But why do we gravitate toward those things? Because apart from God's work in our lives, there are a couple of realities that we have to reckon with. Our hearts are dark. The truth and beauty and goodness of God aren't in there as they should be. And that's because our hearts are divided. We put other things there instead of the Lord. Think about it this way. You're there on the beach. Of course, you've got your phone. And you've probably done this before. You can, you can hold up a, a seashell, we'll say, and take a photo. And you can make the, the, the photo look like the sun's not even there, right? The, the shell's right in front of it and you take the photo. But then you walk a little bit further. You drop your phone in the sand, you get your lens all dirty, and then every photo after that, at least for a while, looks like trash. That's what our hearts naturally do. Other things eclipse His glory in our hearts. They get in the way. And then, as a result, our hearts distort the glory in things all around us. Our hearts are divided, they're distracted, but they're also dark and dirty. And again, that's the problem as much as anything with our phones and with social media, because we end up desiring things other than God. We long for that vacation, that gadget, that new outfit, that new guitar. Yeah, yeah that too. Whatever it is, our, our hearts are divided, and they end up more and more dark. We're called to be pure in heart. And that, I think, is best summed up in two words that sound alike, homophones. So I told a couple of people yesterday at Fort Columbia, that I felt like my sermon was kind of a steaming, uh, steaming pile at that point. But then during, during the day, you know, I, I hit this, and I'm like, well, at least I have a good homophone. You know, I'm way past alliteration, but like, hey, this is kind of cool. But holy and holy, right? We're to be holy for God, W-H-O-L-L-Y. We're to live out the first commandment. We're to have no other gods before Him. We're to turn from our idolatry and worship Him alone, to have hearts that are single, that are devoted toward Him. This, of course, is saying that we shouldn't replace the God of the Bible with Buddha, some other figure. 
But it's saying so much more than that. Nothing should replace the supremacy of God in our hearts. But the reality is that we've all given ourselves to idols, and we have to turn from that. We're also to be holy for God, H-O-L-Y. That means having hearts that are pure, that are different, where we love what he loves and hate what he hates. Where our hearts spill over love, and other people see it in our lives. We're to turn from what he calls sin in our hearts and live for him. To be different from those around us. So devoted to the one true God and seeing that transform our inner life. So holy and holy. Focusing on Jesus, seeking to see him by faith, but also turning from things that dishonor him. And that's what those who truly know Jesus will strive to do. Isn't that what... 1 John 3 says, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, that's holy, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has thus hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So if Jesus has changed you, and you do truly want to see him, you will seek after purity, turning from idols of your heart, running from those sinful desires that destroy you. And Jesus no doubt has Psalm 24 in mind as he lays out this beatitude. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? So who will be in his presence? Who will see him? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. If we want to see the Lord our prize, that's the promise for the blessed, we must seek purity of heart. And that again is the race for the blessed. And there, church will find what we so desperately want. Think about how we tend to think about happiness again. The world says this, that happiness and holiness are in opposition, right? So don't be a prude. Don't be a super religious type. Do what makes you happy. Religion just takes, takes away fun. Don't be a wet blanket. But that could not be further from the truth. Right? As we pursue hearts that are pure, as we say God, there we find the happiness that we so much long for. Now you may bristle and say, Kevin, happiness? You know, you, you grew up in the church. Um, you've heard this before. Um, I thought we were supposed to look at something better than happiness. I thought happiness was a bad word in the church. What about joy? I've made that distinction before here many times. But I so often think, on one hand, that that thinking makes it sound like if we're not miserable, then we're not following Jesus, right? But I do think joy is a better term. You know, happiness is so often tied to happenings, to circumstances. Joy communicates something so much deeper. I like the way Paul Tripp puts it. Joy is an inner peace and rest based on what you know to be true resulting in a life of thankfulness and expectancy. What does it mean if we're 
hashtag blessed today. Well, our circumstances are good, right? The, the photo from the beach, the great foodie pic, you know, the, the selfie with your bestie at the party, the new cute outfit, the really sick ride. That's the blessed life. That's the happy life. At least that's what people say. But those things won't last. And most of our lives aren't really like that. We just put forth our best image on Instagram. Right? We're normally wrestling with trials, trying to keep our head up. Joy means that when there are clouds, we can still see the sun. Even if we're having a day that we would not talk about on Facebook, we don't fall apart. We don't lose hope because we have something deeper. We can see God in it all, and we can keep going as a result. My favorite author, you may have heard of him, put it this way. He writes, joy, the way the Bible describes it, carries us along like a current. I'll start over. That wasn't meant to be a joke. I meant what I said. Joy, the way the Bible describes it, carries us along like a current. It churns beneath the surface of our circumstances, compelling body and soul to keep going. Joy points us to something and someone of worth in the midst of decaying bodies, deferred dreams, and dismaying sin. Joy might be complicated, but it's so good. Those are good words there. Happiness, joy is ours as we pursue hearts that are pure, and through that we see the Lord. But earlier I said there was a problem. A couple of them actually remember God's invisible and God's holy, but there's a solution and there's a glorious one. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15 says. Hebrews 1.3 calls him the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In John chapter 1, God tells his son, tells us his son became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. He goes on to say in verse 18 that in Jesus, God has made himself known. When Philip asked Jesus in the Gospel of John to give the disciples what Moses never received, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and Jesus says right back, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Here and now, again, we can see God little by little in the face of Christ. And one day, we'll be with Him and we'll be able to gaze at Him with wonder forever. What about the holiness problem? Jesus is the only one without sin. The only one with a heart that's truly pure. 1 Peter 2.22 says it this way. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And then it goes on, when he was persecuted, verse 23 says he didn't fight back. And that leaves us a pattern to follow. But verse 24 is huge. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What does that mean? Jesus died as a substitute for us. He paid the penalty we deserved for our impurity, so that we could come into God's presence again, so we could see Him. So that's the amazing solution. So we can have pure hearts and again see God. This is who the Son is. This is what He's done. But we also need the Spirit, who is holy, to apply that to our hearts. And He's done that. 
2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says Satan has blinded us to the glory of Jesus. But verse 6 says, if we're Christians, God has set us free. And now we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we can live holy for him. We can be holy before him again. But obviously, we're still battling idolatry and the resulting impurity every day. We struggle to see God by faith. I want to talk a few minutes about how we go about pursuing hearts that are pure. And these aren't revolutionary. But they're important. First, stay in trust. I mean, don't try to leave the world. Okay, that sounds crazy, but a lot of people do that. Christians try to do that. They kind of try to create their own zone, their own bubble, where sin won't impact them. But listen to the great poet from my youth, a man by the name of Young MC, who warned us from becoming a monk and trying to leave the situation. It doesn't work. Remain and rest in the Holy Spirit whose passion is to make us holy. Second, pray and strive. Call out to God. Ask Him to make you holy. Ask Him to give you faith, but also strive. That's a, that's a word that if you sat under our preaching for a while that you should kind of bristle against. Strive. Are we supposed to do that? Well, we can't just sit there. This has to be an active thing. Where we fight temptation. Where we struggle to be in God's word. Where we live in community even when it's hard. Holiness is a struggle. Third, focus and enjoy. Unplug. Yeah, it's hard. Learn the practices of Sabbath and solitude. Turn off your phone. Grab a journal. Give yourself a nice fountain pen. Find a comfy hammock, if that's what it takes. If we want to see, we have to be able to listen. We need some silence. And that comes really hard in today's world. Fourth, repent and fight. If you fall, and you will, get up and try again. If you can't see God, keep asking, keep listening. Until that day when we see Him face to face, there's going to be so many ups and downs. But God is faithful, and He'll do it. He just wants us to keep trusting, to keep fighting, fighting in his help. We have this promise in 2 Corinthians 13, 8, where Paul puts it like this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So from this beatitude, it sounds like the more pure our hearts become, the more we'll see God. But here it's saying the more we see Him, the more our hearts will become pure. He'll change us as we gaze at Him. So let's gaze at Him, shall we? Now, when we introduced the Beatitudes, now many weeks ago, we talked about that word blessed quite a bit. The, the word that kicks off each of these. Again, what does it mean to be blessed? To experience the fullness of God's favor. I'll give credit to Aaron for that. We've been using that. I think it sums it up well. To experience the fullness of God's favor. But you may not know this, but some people have tried to translate the first word of each of these as happy. Now, I like blessed better. I don't think happy, in a special, especially in today's world, communicates quite enough. 
But it's really not a terrible reading of the verses. To be blessed means more than happy, but it shouldn't mean less than natural. As we begin to live out these beautiful characteristics we see here, the glorious consequences will also be ours, and with that, the more and more will be happy. More and more joy will be ours, but it first comes as we seek him first and as we do what he asks above all. Pastor Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, here's the irony. The less you're concerned about your happiness and the more you're concerned about him, the happier you get. This is not a trick. You can't say, oh great, I have it. I come to God and I say this and this and this. You cannot bandy with the omnipotent and omniscient Lord of the universe. And then he repeats this phrase maybe you've heard before. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Happiness, Keller says, is a byproduct. We're heading into wedding season. And I have at least a couple on the calendar. And I really enjoy doing weddings a lot. I think the first few I did, I was really nervous. And it was hard, but now I just feel like I'm in a groove, and I just love them. Um, but I'll never forget the day, back 20-some years ago, where Amy, with her dad, flung open those doors and walked down the aisle, and then I stood there, weeping, and then somehow had to say my lines through all that. It was, it was hard. There's so much glory in that moment, and there was just so much joy. Now as I do weddings, I also tend to fight back tears not the same, but it's not completely different either, because one is I just have relationships. There are people standing in front of me that I deeply love, but also I just get caught up in the joy of the moment, right? But nothing will compare to that day when Jesus comes looking for his bride. What a happy, happy day that will be, where we'll be like him, where we'll see him. Now that day when we see him face to face, that's been called for some time, the beatific vision. There's a weird word for it. The beatific vision. It may sound familiar. We've got beatitudes, beatific, beatific vision. But it describes this moment when we'll see Jesus. It's the blessed vision, or as it's been put, the sight that makes happy. The sight that makes happy. David Mathis describes that day in this way. As creatures who seek happiness this is the great happiness to come. The moment when we at last stand face to face before our God to, receive, to perceive him visually and immediately and more. And here's the wild thing that I didn't have time to go into, but it would, it, it could, we could spend days here. The wild thing is that we're not going to just see Jesus as I talked about before, but in some way we are going to, through the gaze of the soul, Experience the unmediated presence of God. We're going to see what Moses saw in part, what Paul on the Damascus Road saw in brief. We're somehow, with our soul, going to gaze on God. It doesn't mean that we'll see Him completely and understand everything about Him. We'll keep, it'll keep growing and growing, but we're going to look at Him and see Him, and it's going to be amazing. Hear this quote from Jonathan Edwards that I think is so good. The pleasure of seeing God is so great 
and so strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. There is no darkness can bear such powerful light. That'll keep us going when our days are not Instagram worthy. Through God's grace and His grace alone, we can have pure hearts and we can see God now and forever. Jesus says this, no matter what they may say, this is the blessed life, a life that leads to deep abiding joy. Here's the way I'll summarize this beatitude. Those who struggle to steady their gaze upon God experience the fullness of His favor because His glory will flood and fill their hearts forever. Father, I'm so um, easily distracted and pulled to things that are lesser that don't satisfy. And I, I just pray, Lord, that you would give us a deep desire to see you as we were intended to see you. Don't let us be content with just gathering possessions and trying to put together this happy life. That doesn't involve you. That will leave us disappointed. Work in us, Lord, um, deep discontentment with that. Um, and just a contentment that will only be met in, in seeing you and savoring you, Father. Work in us, I pray. Um, thank you that you've worked to bring us back to you. That you've revealed yourself and want to reveal yourself fully. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are increasingly pure, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.